Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chats, featuring key industry and city building leaders from our region. Their perspectives on the past and the future of the time we recorded and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, we featured the famous Menkes family in 2014. We hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Mansoor Kazaruni with Page & Steel IBI Group Architects. I am uh, co-chair of uh, ULI's uh, program committee along with Mark Kindrachuk. Welcome uh, to our annual uh, ULI Fireside Chat uh, event. And uh, thank you for attending uh, this event tonight. Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, our lead sponsor tonight, uh, our lead sponsor, Ellis Dawn, and our event sponsors tonight, uh, our Architects Alliance and uh, CBRE Limited. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, a brief background on the Fireside Chat event, uh, one of my personal favorite events uh, that the ULI puts up every year. Um, usually a conversation with accomplished uh, individuals, uh, in this case, uh, the Menke's family, of course, um, uh, from the development industry, uh, and uh, uh, just a little window into their journey. In the past, we've had uh, Ned Goodman with Michael Cooper, John Love with Blake Hutchison, Eddie Sunshine and Freddie Wack, and a few others. Uh, last year, of course, some of you may have uh, been here for uh, Mayor McCallion's talk with Jennifer Kiesmatt. Um, this is uh, the sixth uh, such event, and if you missed the previous ones, they are av available on our website. Quick background on the ULI. ULI is a not-for-profit education and uh, research institute uh, with a focus on uh, use of land in order to enhance the environment and with a mission to provide uh, leadership in, in the responsible uh, use of land in creating sustainable, thriving communities worldwide. Uh, building Healthy Places is a new uh, ULI initiative that will leverage uh, the power of the Institute's global network to shape uh, projects and places in ways that improve the health of people and communities. And uh, we actually, in planning this event, we talked about this and uh, uh, right at the outset acknowledged that uh, this is something the Menkes family have been engaged in for, for decades and have been at the forefront of developing such uh, sustainable, thriving, healthy communities. Tonight's agenda will begin uh, uh, with a discussion with Mr. Godfrey and the Menkes family 
uh, Alan, Stephen, and Peter. Uh, uh, that will go for about an hour until 7 p.m., uh, after which we will have uh, about 20 minutes of audience questions and then a quick wrap-up. Uh, we encourage you to submit questions for the Q&A uh, through Twitter or by email uh, to toronto at uli.org. Um, Twitter info hashtag uli underscore fsc or hashtag uli ask. Uh, the moderator for uh, tonight's event is uh, Mr. Paul Godfrey, uh, who requires uh, very little introduction. And uh, I, was, I was handed a, a bio for Mr. Godfrey's background and his accomplishments, which spans about 12 pages. And I could make an event out of just introducing Mr. Godfrey. But uh, suffice it to say that his career encompasses long stints in the publishing business, in professional sports management, and in politics. Um, he is currently the president and CEO of Post Media Network, Canada's largest publisher of paid English language daily newspapers. Uh, in keeping with the tradition of our uh, fireside chat events, uh, we really wanted uh, somebody that, uh, that knew the Benkis family well and could engage them in, in a conversation rather than a professional interview. Uh, we think Mr. Godfrey is that person. He has a very long association with the Menke's family that spans uh, five decades and uh, a, a, a long-standing family relationship that goes back to Mr. Murray Menke's. We are delighted to have him with us as moderator this evening and look forward to an engaging conversation. I will now invite Mr. Godfrey uh, to introduce the Menke's brothers. Thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm delighted to be here tonight to uh, share the platform with uh, Alan, Stephen, and Peter. Um, I almost didn't make it. I, you know what the weather is like. Uh, I decided that parking was too difficult downtown, so I decided to take a cab. But I couldn't get the cab. Couldn't get a cab. So I decided to drive, and I parked maybe five or six blocks, and I keep looking at my time. I'm a fairly quick walker, so I parked the car a number of blocks away, and I started walking at a very brisk pace. I came to a traffic signal and there was this little elderly lady standing there and the, the light was red and she kept looking up at me and I nodded to her and the light changed and I bolted across the street. Much to my surprise, this 85-year-old lady was walking step by step with me. <laughs> it, it, was, it was kind of incredible. I thought she was training for the Olympics for a while. I finally walked a block or so, came to the next light and the light was red again, and obeying the traffic signal, I stopped, and she said, Sir, can I ask you a question? I said, Certainly. She said, Did anyone ever tell you you look like Paul Godfrey? <laughs> I said, Yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> and she looked up at me and said, Boy, that must piss you off. <laughs> so, I hope, I hope the reception tonight here is a little bit better than the one I received there. In any event, Menkes development. There wouldn't be a Menkes development if there wasn't a Murray Menkes. It was right, I've known, I knew Murray, Murray Menkes 
just after I got elected in 1964 for the North York Council. He was a small builder. I met him. I asked him how long he'd been in the business. He said about 10 years. He was a small house builder back in the early 50s, building a couple of lots at Shepherd and Bathurst Street. This growing community up in North York. And business through a recession, even at those days, was pretty good. He expanded to six homes the next year, 20 homes the year after, and then he started to build rental apartment buildings. And of course, along came big bad government and brought in rent controls. However, condos were introduced, and the Minkus empire, which wasn't the real empire at that time, started to grow and grow and grow. And for those of you that didn't have the pleasure of meeting Murray Mankus, let me tell you something. He was a risk taker. He was a visionary. He hated to see his name in the paper. But he was a very opinionated guy. Speaking to him one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, he would tell you what he thought was wrong with government. He would tell you what was wrong with the way things were going on and who he differed with and who he agreed with. But he was a strong-willed, principled man. And I watched over the years when I became chairman of Metropolitan Toronto. Here was a guy that had the right vision. He met with Mel Lastman and together, I can tell you, together they changed the face of North York's Young Street. Some people called it Uptown Downtown. Some people called it the North York Civic Center. He also worked in Mississauga with Mayor Hazel McCallion one of your previous guests for the evening. And it was wonderful watching a man who was very close to his family, very close to his community, do something that a lot of people envied but couldn't do themselves. So the, the face of North York changed. And yes, there were troubled times in the early 90s and many developers who took risks, who built this great city fell by the wayside. These young men right here started to get involved in the business and I have some questions for them. And lo and behold, this company grew. And today a lot of people talk about the Mancuses as being a giant company. Unfortunately, Murray passed away about a year ago. And you know, I often think that when you see a person's monument, it usually states the date of their birth and the unfortunate date of their passing. And there's a little dash in between. The dash that Murray Minkus has is his history is a very long one and a very successful one. He laid the groundwork for an organization that no doubt these young men here tonight blossomed to things that much bigger, and as I said to them yesterday when I spoke to them collectively on the phone, that I don't think Murray himself would have ever believed that something this positive and this good could have happened. So that's a bit about the story of Murray Mankus, and I'm about to asked the boys, and I watched them grow up, and I watched them get involved in the company itself, 
And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of families put their sons in charge of businesses after they've made a fortune and I've watched the business disappear. These young men have taken the business and brought it to a new level, a level that we all can be proud of as Torontonians and a level that others are gonna find difficult to match. So thank you, I want uh, to thank you for the opportunity of coming tonight to speak uh, about Murray Mankus, who is a guy that uh, I miss very much. Um, we shared a home together in um, Florida. We're in the same building together in Florida. And more importantly, I now live in the building that he built for Four Seasons. So very close for many reasons with the Mankus family. I'm gonna take my seat and we'll start the discussion with the three of them. Okay, gentlemen, you're all in major positions in this company. It's a multi-generational business and it's a multi-use facilities all over the place. But I think the people here would like to know, what was your first job and when did you start? Alan, we'll go oldest to youngest. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, uh, that was a very nice introduction about our dad. Um, you know, he was one of those guys that always had a very low profile, <coughs> as you described, and he never got swept up in success. Um, he kept a kept a very very low profile, kept his and kept um, kept his his whole attitude and outlook quite humbly. So we had that um, we had that uh, personification of him, and we grew up with that type of uh, outlook. And uh, when I first started working in the company, I had worked for about a year outside of the company in the investment business and was lucky enough to get moved to New York and saw a little bit of New York City and the uh, debacle when the New York was going down and when they were, when they actually declared bankruptcy, mm -hmm. on the verge of declaring uh, Chapter 11. So uh, then came back and then decided to come back to Toronto uh, because uh, my dad called me up and said, we just bought this tremendous property on Bathurst Street just north of Finch. Um, and it was a great opportunity of, uh, to build high-rise apartments. And he said, you know what, I think we should, we're, we're thinking about building condos. I said, you know what, that sounds like a good business. I'd be interested. And he said, well, you don't have to. He says, you can, you can come or you can stay in New York, and New York's a great place to live. And I said, you know what, I said, this is a great opportunity. And, um, and, he, and he offered it to me. So basically, it was a development of 1,500 units on Bathurst, north of Finch, an area called Forest Hills. We built six buildings and condominiums, and we really sort of, it was the beginning of the whole lifestyle condominium movement, where we built amenities uh, that were shared amongst all the different buildings. It had never really been done before. Up until then, condominium was really based upon a rental apartment being converted to home ownership. There was really no concept of a lifestyle program. So that was really the, um, the genesis of, uh, of really our condo business, which was in 1976. And, um, and that really sort of began from 76 through to, to 83, where we built out those five buildings. So what year did you come back to Toronto? 76. As w that was in 76, and the, yeah. Forest, it was the old Forest Hills Golf Course, as I Correct. remember. Correct, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, when did you uh, uh, join the <coughs> business, and uh, what responsibility uh, did you take on when you first started? 
Well, I was always the uh, sort of the numbers uh, guy in the family. And when I graduated university, I spent a couple of years in the accounting uh, industry. And then in 1982, um, I decided to join the company. And I guess one of the reasons, there are a few, a few things at play. I remember always going to uh, my dad's office on weekends or odd times and when it before 1982. And I remember he always used to say to me that he, al he was always a little bit uh, frustrated with accounting in the sense of getting reports, getting timely reports, and the, um, and the reports just seemed to be, they weren't timely or they weren't accurate. Those were in the days, of course, when everything was done manually. The computer was, you know, $10,000 and maybe there was one in someone's office. So uh, <coughs> I really thought it was quite, uh, was my calling to start with the company in that area, which is what I did. And I spent my first 12 years in the company really focused on the financial end of uh, raising capital for projects such as as Forest Hills and, and many others. What about you, Peter? So I went to uh, school in Boston in 1982 and I came back and it was a recession. Not a depression, just a regular old-fashioned real estate recession. And I was going to work at one of the banks and my father said, no, I'll pay you what the banks will pay you. We have, we had just built about five industrial buildings in Mississauga, and it was a recession, they were all empty. So it was a great way for me to learn how to, A, you know, deal with a recession period, and then really have the opportunity to learn from the people in the company and how to lease these buildings. And so I came in within the leasing department, which then, by 1984, turned into buying land and building buildings. So that was the genesis of my you know, foray into the company. Well, I'm going to ask you a question now because I've watched fathers and sons in businesses. I've watched Ted Rogers work with his, his son in a business. I've watched Izzy Asper work with his son in a business. I've worked with my own sons in, in, in the Blue Jays. And, uh, and I, I realize that some days it's not the easiest to work with your old man. I, I would like to hear from all three of you how it was to work with Marie Mankus. Well, we can go this way now. Sir, sure. so we're going this way now. <laughs> Alan's, Alan's thinking. He's yeah, making yeah. notes <laughs> for me. No, I know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, he was a great mentor. You know, like, like Alan said earlier, he didn't really go for the spotlight. He was a, a guy that could express things for you very clearly and, and succinctly and not a lot of words. So he was a great mentor, but he had high expectations. It was hard driving, but and he never treated us with kid gloves. We had to go out there and prove ourselves and work hard, and he would, he would definitely be a, a tough guy, fair, tough, but very high expectations, but also extremely supportive. Just, you could call, and whenever we would have a conversation, you could you know, start the sentence, he would be able to finish it. Just, there was such a symbiotic synergy that uh, we all had with him, and he was just a tremendous mentor. Stephen, you controlled all the, uh, the finances of the company, so, uh uh, how, did, how did it work for you, working well, with your dad? Well, we had a lot of discussions about that over the years. <laughs> I can assure you that. Um, all went very well. Uh, as Peter says, he, our dad always said that you never uh, learn anything when you're talking. So he was a wonderful listener. And he would, at the end of the day, he would take in all the information that you were presenting to him. He would uh, basically digest it, think about it, and usually come back with an answer that was spot on. He was very intuitive that way. And he was also incredibly supportive, as Peter was saying. He's the kind of guy that if you went to him with an idea, he would always try to back you. Uh, if you didn't agree with it, he would tell you. But with lion's share of things, he was always uh, very much uh, behind us in things that we did. 
and was a really a wonderful mentor for all of us. Alan, as the oldest one, um, did you carry a heavier burden because you were the first son to work with them, and I, it was I a difficult. Well, uh, he was a, he was pretty strategic in the way that he uh, quietly strategic, and I think that because he had three sons, not really knowing whether all three sons were ever going to enter the business. When they did, he, he sort of used it to his fullest. And I think what I meant, what I, what I would mean by that in, in a good way is that he created, he suggested, we had two divisions. We, 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 had, a, we had a high rise residential division, which we'll talk about in the commercial division, and of course, uh, low rise residential division. So his, his real tactic was to ensure that each one of us had our own unit and we had our own independence, but within that own independence, you also had competitive juices. Everybody wants to be able to be successful in whatever, they, whatever their endeavor is. So the, the, the sum of the parts was much greater than the individual units on their own, and that's really what we thrived on, each other. And uh, his joy, obviously, it was to see them all operating you know, in a very cohesive and a very, um, in a very, very fluid way. Well, obviously that did, that took place. But Stephen, how does uh, three brothers doing <coughs> different things in the company, uh, the interaction? Uh, certainly, I know I have three sons. Uh, they don't always agree on everything. In fact, I quite often argue about things. How does uh, when you when you're as a family you you're, you're united, but in business, tell me how it works. Well, I think while while we were in our formative years, and our dad was busy working at at the office, and I think our mother did a fabulous job of instilling wonderful values in the three of us and the importance of family. And that really started really very young, and really it's just continued seamlessly under the corporate side. Uh, we uh, were lucky in the sense that the three of us, it's hard to believe, but that each one of us have been working in the company between uh, 32 and 37 years. So between that, we have gone through cycles, up cycles, down cycles. We've all experienced the same vintages of what the industry has gone through. We've all learned the same lessons. And everybody has their strengths, and we all know what our strengths are. And as Alan says, by putting all those together, it really makes for a great relationship. Uh, we have, the way that we have uh, designed uh, our divisions, we head up each one of ourselves, heads up our divisions, but by the same token, we're very, very interactive with one another on all major decisions. And on day-to-day -day operations, we're very uh, independent. But at the high level, we meet every day, and we always know what's going on in each other's divisions. That's and it's been that's a great. It's that's been great. If we think alike, we're like-minded. Well, that's wonderful to hear that. Alan, the, I guess most people who have been around as long as I have, uh, when they think back of the history of Mencus development, think of North York. And I think that the first giant leap from small company to at least intermediate or starting to take the shape of a large company came with the risks and the challenges of the North York City Center, the building of a downtown uptown. You want to tell us about that? Well, I guess it was uh, 1979. Um, 70, well, there, I don't know, where were you in 1979? You were I was the chairman of Metro in 73. So there you go. 73 so to 84. So right in the middle of it all, Mel decides that he'd like to build a downtown North York. So um, we were, had just, uh, we, were, we were in that condominium uh, uh, business that we had started in 76, 
and uh, we were also in the industrial business as well. And um, we decided that downtown North York uh, was really a, a viable option because of the strategic location of the, of the, of the 401, of the subway. If you were to draw a, a map of the GTA and you put a dot in the middle, you would see that it would have been at that time, would have been Young and Shepherd. So we realized that, that Mel was onto something and he was, he was, he was actually, actually was quite viable. So, um, so we decided to take a position on a very, very uh, strategic piece of land on Young Street uh, because there was a, it was a, it was a potential for, a, uh, for an office tower. It was our first office tower. We had never done it before and we thought if there's one place to do it, it would be on Young Street, connected to the subway. So we took a position, we bought the property and uh, got it zoned and approved with Mel, uh, who was very supportive. And you know he was he was supportive of us, of course, because this was going to be a landmark building as you came up Young Street into his new downtown. You were going to see this this uh, trophy-looking building at the time, and we thought that uh, that it would be uh, it would be very important. So we we went forward and we got it all approved and ready to go in 19, uh, 1982. And of course, the recession of '82 came, and for some of you who maybe haven't been through any recessions before, a lot of you have, but some of you haven't. When you go through a recession and nobody calls for a year, it leaves an impact, a, un, a lasting impact, and that's what happened. So we sat with this property for a year and a half and nobody called. We had it all approved, ready to go, best site in town. We felt that it was really the, the best thing. So we were lucky. We, we had a very, very strong banker who was behind us. And uh, he said, you know, you guys, it's a great location. I believe in you. You know, you can start this building without any tenants. We'll support you. So that's what we did. Within 60 days of starting the building, a company knocked on our door and said, we'd like to lease the entire building. That doesn't happen too often, <laughs> to say the least. For sure. <laughs> and we knew it. <laughs> so uh, so we, we made a, we made a, uh, a marriage with Procter & Gamble. They leased the entire building for their headquarters. They moved from Hamilton. They consolidated a couple locations from Hamilton and St. Clair and Young. They moved all, all their people up to uh, Young and Shepherd because, it was, of course, it was on the subway line and they, and they were used to that type of environment. And they were forward-looking enough to realize that this was going to be a new, a new area that was really going to make a lot of sense. So that's what happened. And, they, and they're still a tenant today in the same building. Um, and uh, we occupy our offices there now as well after, uh, after being out of the building for about 20 years. Not out of the building. We didn't, we didn't actually occupy the building until about eight years ago. I'm trying to remember. Peter doesn't uh, exactly. Yeah, ten, ten years ago. Ten years. We moved into the building. So we didn't occupy it right, off the, right at the beginning. Procter & Gamble occupied it and, uh, and occupied almost all of the building. And then afterwards, uh, with some of the changes, they, there was some space became available. So that was a very big move. Well, there's no doubt that that building was the catalyst that uh, triggered the possibility of other things on the North York Strip, uh, north of Highway 401. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter, uh, you probably can enlighten the audience tonight about the Empress Walk, because that's the signature property there, and one that was talked about for a long time, and uh, people were betting that that would never get off the ground, and uh, somehow, you guys pulled it off. Do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Sure thing. So after the success of, of the Procter & Gamble building, which I might add, when the lease expires, it will have been there for 37 years. So that's quite a, a run with the tenancy. 
So with that success and Mel's vision with the miracle on Young Street, we went up to Young and Empress, which was really what Mel was calling the North York City Center, which today has a subway, se subway station there and, and the site is right on, on that uh, location. So when we went up this, the street, I think it was in 1986, started to assemble approximately over 30 properties, about eight acres of land for a major mixed use project, which is what we're here to talk about, just the evolution of mixed use. So it was really the first first go of a major mixed use project that we had done and probably one of the largest ones for, for Toronto and definitely a landmark for North York and Mel Lastman was encouraging us to uh, take it to that, to that next level. So we had it zoned for two office buildings, about a million one square feet of office, a hotel, which we had a letter of intent with Western Hotels, we had a condo tower and it all sat on a big retail podium. So we went through this assembly, we went through the rezoning and 1990 hit which 1990 was you know, the greatest real estate depression and you know, hopefully we don't ever see something like that again because it lasted through till 1996. So we had all that done and there were no tenants and everybody knew that there were no office tenants and no one knew when the next round of office tenants would come out. So we said, we believe there's signs of life for residential. It's a great community. There's already a good base of office buildings within the city centre. So let's come up, let's take the office density, rezone it to residential and do a significant lifestyle retail entertainment center that would be the foundation and the base of this project and build the condos on top with all the amenities for those residents. So with that, we, we got the support of the city, a little kicking and screaming, but they uh, capitulated. And we went out to the market with a four-level uh, entertainment center. We went to the U.S., got some ideas on what they were doing there. Then we went to Loblaws and showed them the site. They understood the density of the people living <coughs> there and working there and agreed to put a concourse level food store in the, uh, in the facility, which is, had a large atrium in the middle, but was connected to the new subway station that was going on. So we got Loblaws. We then went to uh, one, something that was happening at that time. It was, a, it was about 1997 or 96 at that time. In the US, they were doing all these multiplex theaters. AMC, Famous Flair, Cineplex were doing the stadium seating, so we went to uh, all of them. We ended up doing a deal of famous players to put a, a tenplex in the, in the facility. So we had the top floor and the bottom floor committed, and with that, those were our anchors, and then, you know, hence uh, the symbiotic relationships within our company. Alan running the high-rise residential was then able to go to the market with the market condominium with all the amenities of uh, the lifestyle, Already entertainment, there. the subway, and all the uh, attributes to make the uh, condos a success. So really that really laid the foundation to us, you know, really believing in the lifestyle, entertainment, and uh, mixed use, you know, facilities. So basically that, that project really cemented the idea of multi-use complexes and which you've carried on very successfully as an organization ever since. Exactly, and yeah. it, it was something that took us from 86 till 99, so it took us 13, 14 years to really realize. start to finish, to go from a good market to a depression to a recovering market. Yeah, very good. I guess a lot of people here uh, may not realize what a company like yours has to go through during a major recession. You called it the, the worst you've ever seen. I think many people would agree with you. Uh, Stephen, uh, as a finance guy involved in something like that, how did you face the challenges? What was it like, uh, uh, you know, dealing with banks and uh, dealing with the with the with the, pe uh, the whole people that are, are involved in it, the trades and everything else during a period of time like that? 
Well, I would say the most important uh, issue in that, in that time, it's, it's, as Peter says, it was seven years long. In fact, the, the, the residential market stopped, stopped in March of 1989. Uh, the economy was slowing down. It was a really a very substantial overbuilding, both oversupply, both in the office market as well as in the uh, residential market, both high-rise and low-rise. So it was revaluations going on. Lenders were under intense pressure uh, because of their balance sheets and and the uh, researchers on the uh, stock market that were, of course, tracking their stocks and what, the, what their exposures were. So inevitably, when that pressure comes to bear on those lenders, the first place they, one of the first places they go to look to is their, is their customer base. Very, very important. I can't stress enough the, the importance of relationships, communication, and honesty with lenders. Uh, as Alan said, we had a very good lender on, that supported us on the uh, P&G uh, building when we started on spec. And quite frankly, it was, it was a lot of uh, sleepless nights and a lot of lo long phone calls and meetings, but we had the attention and we had the uh, support of a multitude of lenders. And in those days, there were quite a few lenders. There were Schedule B banks were around, so there was a fair bit of capital around, which is part of the problem why the overbuilding started in the first place. But by the same token, <coughs> because of the history and successes that we had over the years prior to that depression, uh, it really stood us in good stead with our ability to deal with, uh, deal with lenders and we had very good support. Part of the other things that we did to, to get through that, uh, come out of the recession on the other end in a positive way was to look for opportunities. So what we did in 1994 is we decided to resurrect our low-rise residential division, which we really had, had uh, changed in the late 70s when we went into the condo to shut down the low-rise res. And we decided to go back into it. And at that time, it's very different <coughs> today, but at that time, the low-rise residential market was 75% of the new home market. Today, it's a much lower percentage. So uh, we decided to go into that, and we built a just recently uh, completing in our last phase of operations a, a, a really a mixed-use community uh, in the town of Ajax of uh, about an 80-acre piece of land that we bought, that we had, and we built 600 houses along with a um, food-anchored retail shopping center of about 130,000 square feet. So we built this community. The shopping center is complete. It's fully occupied and serves as a great amenity to the uh, community that we built immediately right beside it. And the low-rise residential division has continued since for the past 20 years uh, since we put it back in shape in 94. As we saw, that was where an opportunity was. The recession really uh, ended around 96. We went into it in 94, and we came out of it when it was the right call to make because there was a lot of activity in that, in that sector uh, when, the, when that depression finally ended. Peter, you were uh, telling me before uh, how you developed a relationship with the pension funds at that point in time, uh, which uh, I think for all the years that I served in public life, pension funds really didn't show their, 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 their face. Nobody heard of pension funds. But all of a sudden, pension funds are now very involved. And I guess that you got started in the early 90s with them as well. Right. The, um, the pension fund, at so by the mid-nine, the banks were really out of real estate. They didn't want to touch real estate. And as we know, real estate's a very capital-intensive business. And at the time, actually, companies that I'm sure a lot of you remember was companies like Cadillac Fairview and Oxford were the companies that got in, you know, that were had severe problems and teachers got was invested with Cadillac and um, Omer's with Oxford. And today those are now 100% owned by those pension funds. But they were public companies that ended up getting taken over that way because they couldn't, because uh, the amount of capital they had required to, you know, run all those office buildings. 
from our standpoint, we wanted to grow our industrial base. So we wanted to build industrial buildings. We wanted to build office buildings. And at that time, pension funds looked at real estate as a good a alternative asset class. So they were anxious to get into the business. So with their capital and our capital with predominantly our expertise in being a developer, hands-on developer, knowing the market, we created several marriages with uh, a few pension funds. And to this day, we still own buildings with those pension funds. We're developing you know, um, 25 York Italics building and all the projects we're doing downtown with uh, pension funds. So that's really the way of the world today because it's so capital intensive. So it's, it's a way that we transgress, you know, from the 90s into the going forward in the future. And by becoming a much bigger business and company, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we need that kind of capital. So it's a natural source for us. So it's been a, a great relationship. The Minkus development seems to have gone from <coughs> one iconic building to the next. And everyone's, each one seems to be more of a challenge and a bigger challenge. Alan, how did you land the Four Seasons? Uh, the Four Seasons, the corner of Avenue Road, New Yorkville, seemed like they were going to be there forever. Um, obviously, you convinced uh, Izzy Sharp to, uh, that uh, you had a piece of land, that, that uh, you could create something uh, bigger, nicer, better, and now a, a new iconic building in Toronto. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, that was uh, that's a, that was a challenge. Um, actually, I, I'm not sure that my dad was really that much in favor of it in the beginning because he knew the challenges of building a complicated building like it. He knew he knew too much. So, um, but we were we we had just come off Empress Walk and we were uh, we're I mean we're developing uh, Italics Tower, 25 York. And um, uh, we were talking the Four Seasons about their existing building at Avenue Road in, uh, in Yorkville, and really in, in trying to renovate it, but it really wasn't, um, it really wasn't doable. Uh, the building was built in 1970 with low ceilings, uh, really a fortress-type building at the time, and, um, and it really didn't serve their purpose. They had 450 hotel rooms, and they really only needed 250. Uh, so uh, I think five or six floors were never really occupied uh, when they were running the hotel because they never really needed them. And they didn't operate that type of operation. Their operation was based upon a, uh, a luxury hotel operator of uh, medium-sized hotels. That was, their that was their formula, and that's really what they wanted to stick to. So Toronto was really one of the last uh, cities really to really get a new hotel in the Four Seasons chain. But they never wanted to leave Yorkville. They were dead set on staying in the, in the area. And so we, um, uh, we, we, we worked at trying to find uh, the suitable site, and it eventually did come up where, where, the, where the new Four Seasons Hotel and Residences are today. And um, it was a complicated uh, design because we had to determine, we had to build resi uh, condominium residences to be able to subsidize the cost of the hotel. Because to build a hotel on its own, a five-star hotel with their types of services and their, and their uh, level of, um, of finishes uh, really couldn't sustain <coughs> the market value couldn't sustain the cost of that type of type of building. So we realized that residential was really the only formula that could number one help subsidize the hotel, and number two, it actually was a amenity uh, that the residential buyer would like to have. So it was really um, it was a mutual uh, mutual type of uh, value proposition. So basically, we. Uh, we went ahead and we, we zoned and, and got and 
got the site approved by the city. And uh, interesting story, when we went to the get the, uh, when we applied for the zoning at the city, um, we, were dealt, we dealt uh, quite extensively with the local communities as we would normally do. And uh, when we came in with a 55-story um, a, um, building, uh, sorry, we came in with a 50-story building, um, they, and we had two towers, a 50-story building and a 30-story building, 28-story building. They said, I got it wrong. In a 50-story building and a 35-story building, they said, why don't you take the shorter buildings and take five floors off the shorter building and put them on the taller building? Never heard of that before. I never heard of a ratepayer group coming to you and saying, make the building taller. <laughs> but they did. <laughs> and we said, okay. It ended up that that was the, they actually were right. And we, we, were, we were too conservative and they, were, they, had the right, they had the right outlook. Because at the end of the day, we found uh, that people wanted to be above the hotel with tremendous views of the city. The higher, the better. And that's what people responded to when they bought, as you well know. You have a, you have I'm a, sure a, you you have a great that. apartment. <laughs> I've, I've been in it before, and you got a spectacular view. No, there's, 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 there's you no got one of a kind. There, there's <laughs> no, and, and what Alan is saying is, is it's a breathtaking uh, view. I look overlook the whole city, and I thought I purchased something on the 42nd floor, and when you moved it from 50 floors to 55 floors, I suddenly was on the 47th floor. <laughs> so you, uh, you put the five floors in. And I was quite surprised. That was a bonus as right. far as I was concerned. And I can tell you from, yeah. uh, from being on other floors as you go down, the view, view becomes more spectacular as you go up. Exactly. There, there, there's no doubt. And uh, uh, the boy's mum lives on 54. And uh, her view is spectacular. Spectacular. Yeah. Now. It's, it, it's interesting. The Four Seasons um, managed to, in my opinion at least, um, become the go-to building. The Ritz-Carlton did the same thing. They had a hotel and residence. The Shangri-La did the same thing. And Trump, who had all types of difficulties and still have some even today, how did you avoid them when they seemed to have difficulties? Well, I can give you a little bit of color. Um, ba uh, really, the, uh, there's a couple of real uh, major uh, differences. Um, number one, there was a, uh, a hometown brand. People were had an affinity. Shangri-La, Ritz, Trump had never operated in Toronto. Four Seasons had, so they had a following. Um, the location of Yorkville was really uh, was really uh, was really one where the market was really waiting for something. That was really in that in that vicinity, and that was always a Coney neighborhood that that people wanted to live in with that type of product, but couldn't find it. And the third and the third thing was the the hotel lifestyle, which really hadn't really been exploited in Toronto uh, in any big way, but had been in the U.S. And a lot of the Four Seasons buyers uh, are what we call Four Seasons aficionados. So they they'll travel the world and they'll stay in a Four Seasons hotel and. Europe or in Asia or in the U.S. and uh, they and they totally get the brand, so we didn't have to convince them of the brand. I mean, they they, they walked in, they said, "Well, we're you know this is the Four Seasons. Where do I sign?" So they were already committed. So all we had to do, all we had to do, we we had to do a little bit more than that. But we, but we had well we had to well we did build the the type of product that they were looking for, the residential product they were looking for. But clearly they bought for for the services, for the investment value, 
uh, for the future, knowing full well that this was going to really stand, withstand the test of time and that management of Four Seasons would continue to manage the building. So they had the, the feeling of longevity uh, that, it would, that, it would, uh, that it would stand up. Now, my spies in Florida <coughs> tell me that a sign has just gone up in recent weeks that the Four Seasons residence is, are going to be built in Surfside, right on the ocean. Is, is Mancus going to be building that? <laughs> <laughs> Let us I in on the we'll, we'll be walking by, <laughs> but we'll be building it. One, one is enough. One's enough. <laughs> All right. Well, while that's going on, Minkus strikes again. The probably all types of development going uh, east of Young Street and west of Young Street. Very few people, other than than the um, buildings that are were built on the railway lands. We're going south of Young, yet you decide to take the challenge and build something right next to the Air Canada Centre for a major tenant, a major player. There's a big advertising for that, so we're very <laughs> pleased with that. But tell us about that. So the South Core Financial District, as it's known today, back in 2005, all really starting really in 2000 when the Air Canada Centre opened in, in 1990 with the with the Skydome or the Rogers Center, really that was just derelict railway lands. So once the, the Air Canada Center opened up, you know, we were still recovering from the recession and no, we obviously hadn't seen the office buildings being built. I think a lot of people thought the downtown core would shift to the west, to the entertainment district. And, but there still hadn't been any demand. By 2005, when we bought the site at uh, 25 York Street with Telluses, the vacancy, the vacancy rate was about three or 4% in downtown. So we went ahead, we bought the site. There were a lot of pundits who said, you know, nobody's going to go south of the tracks. And, you know, from, from our standpoint, we would stand in any office downtown, tower downtown, look south and see Union Station, and you'd see a site that wasn't across the street, but was part of Union Station. It was actually, we have a connection right into Union Station. So it was right there, the busiest transportation facility in Canada. So we took the plunge, along with one of our, a couple of our financial partners, pension fund, one know, that uh, still is our partner in the deal today, that we went and bought the site, designed the spec building, and at that time when we, we closed in December of 05, by March of 06, we had a, a signed lease with Telus, who was taking 60% of the building, about 460,000 square feet of an 800,000 square foot building. So they, they, saw the, well they saw the value in A, Union Station, having that connectivity, B, having you know, a tremendous workforce of young people, educated people, in a great location, and see sustainability. They really have a culture of sustainability, and we were one of the first to do a lead gold building. So all those features together, we, uh, you know, we, we believed in it, and my friend John O'Toole there, when we were at the conference, he said I, you know, that we poked the bear. We woke up the downtown market, and all of a sudden, other developers who realized their buildings were full and didn't want to lose their tenants went and bought other sites in the area, and the whole area has just blown wide open, and. Uh, Everyone has been uh, very successful with all the office and condos that have gone ahead there. Well, you, we talked a little earlier on that how building the Procter & Gamble building on Yonge Street was a catalyst for making things happen. It seems to me you've done the same thing in the core of the city. The North York boys went, went, <laughs> went south, and basically you built 25 York Street, and now you're building next to the 
uh, Harbor 60 Steakhouse, providing them a lot more customers in the future that they really don't need. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Can't get in there anyway. But what are you doing there? What, what, what's planned for the future in that complex? So now we've taken all our, this is to us the, you know, the icing on the cake of all our mixed use expertise and uh, we have a tremendous team, you know, in the office of everybody that's been with us for a long time and understands the challenges because what we, what we have on the site, which is from Lakeshore to Harbor Street from York Street right next to Harbor 60 and it's a two and a half acre site that we bought and we had, we zoned to, for two million square feet, it has a million square feet of residential and a million square feet of commercial. Of that commercial, 800,000 feet is office and 200,000 feet is retail. And then on the residential side, it's 66 story tower and a 69 story tower, a million square feet. So it is a mega project, very complicated. Sometimes we look at each other and say, <laughs> why do we do this to ourselves? We could just build three towers and get on with life. But we really see a lot of demand for that area, as everyone knows in this room, it's really center ice in the city now. It's where all the activity is, where people want to be. It's got a great vibe to it. So with that, we've uh, embarked on that program. We're under construction there. We've basically leased 60% of the, of the commercial space and sold a lot of condominiums, you know, 80, you know, a lot of condominiums. So much so that we're under construction on the entire project right now and we'll be moving our first tenants in and summer of 16 and the condo residences in 2017 sometime. So really exciting and that's really the culmination of the expertise and, and I think it's an edge that we have when we go to the marketplace and not many companies can really have all that depth within their organization from a development standpoint. It's not for the faint of heart. It's uh, very stressful, difficult to build, to design and try to uh, please everybody. You have office tenants, you have retailers, you have condo residents who all want to have their own identity and you try to put that into one project, it's uh, very challenging. And what about the all traffic in the area? <laughs> Union Station. No, actually the traffic in the area now is, is really a function of all the improvements. One street is closed, Union Station is going under major, you know, renovation. One amazing thing I think for the area is the ramps at, uh, on York Street that come off the garden are going to be removed. They're going to, main entrance is going to be off of off of uh, <coughs> Lower Simcoe, so York Street will now be a, a gateway. So our building will be the, you know, the, the signature building as you have the gateway, and all, all our buildings that also have connectivity to the path. So it's going the path is going to go from the Air Canada Center with a bridge underneath the Gardener into our building, bridge over Harbor Street into the new RBC headquarters, and then take you right to Queens Key. So all the residents who live in Queens Key have a path system now, or will when the buildings are completed. So we've really connected you know, the waterfront to the core. Which shows you the, the great things that Toronto is, has been doing and you guys are playing a major, major, major part. But I want to talk to you before we finish about the future. Father takes his three sons into the building. What about the three sons and the next generation? You know what, uh, generation one, generation two, what, what about generation three, Stephen? Well, I think that <coughs> Unbeknownst to us, is the three of us have been working as for as long as we have, <coughs> and as hard as we have, uh, we've really set a, uh, subliminally a very good example for our children. And they've watched the three of us get along so well with our father uh, in the business for so many years that they have, um, they have a number of them, four of them so far, have decided to join the company and uh, 
some as long as go as five years or a little over five years, some as recently as, as a month. And those four people are, um, are going through a process where they're being uh, trained and mentored by a, a series of executives in our company that have been with us for many, many years. And they are working in separate divisions, similar to logic as the three of us. They're spread out as well and being uh, trained and mentored in uh, specific areas that, that they're interested in. And it's a, uh, it was really a wonderful thing to see for our dad as well because up until last April, he was uh, still coming in the office when he was in Toronto. And he had a great relationship with, with those four as well, uh, mentoring them. And they really uh, relished that, um, that relationship that they had in a, in a company sense. They always knew him, of course, as a grandfather, as a home or on weekends, but to see him in action in the office and for our father to be able to hand down all those years of experience and knowledge to them was, was really a wonderful thing to see. So we're very much, uh, very much excited uh, and structured in uh, trying to ensure the, their success in the company and uh, so far we're very pleased with it. Well, that's great. Uh, you all operate separate divisions. It's almost like three separate companies and somehow you've linked them all together and it appears seamless uh, throughout. I'd like to hear from each of you. What do you think is the greatest challenge that for the future? Uh, Alan? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, challenge, opportunity. Um, you know, one of the, we all talk about infrastructure in the city. And I've, been I've been talking about it for 10 years. And um, the biggest challenge to get the infrastructure uh, installed, uh, which was should have been installed many, many years ago, is really a, a, um, a collaboration of uh, two levels of government, the province and the municipal government. And, um, and I think that I mean there really has to be a, uh, there really has to be a, um, a, a collaboration that really should both, and it's really a political collaboration. And some, there has to be a way that the two, those two groups get together and really uh, execute on the strategy that has been talked about for so long. And maybe it's egos, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's someone really believing that one system is better than the other. And I do take them all for, for what, they, what they say, which is they do believe that you know, a subway might be better than, than, a, um, you know, than a LRT or, or uh, Whatever, whatever, whatever the Eglinton line is going to be called. I'm not sure what LRT is the right word or not. But the point being is that there needs to be a, a cohesive program that's set and moved forward with quickly, because everyone talks about it, and as we all see, you know, we all know, gridlock is just continuing to get more and more uh, of an issue, and will continue to. And people want to be able to move around. They want to live the vitality of living in a city. It's dynamic, and people want to live with other people, and that's what the city is all about, and government has to be able to come together to be able to facilitate that, because that's what the social makeup and the social um, direction is of, the, of, the next, of, these gener of this ne next generation. And you're expecting this city council to... <laughs> Never mind, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm getting carried away, sorry about that. What's the greatest challenge in your, uh, your area? Well, certainly the low-rise <coughs> residential market is, is a third of what it was 10 years ago. We now do about uh, 12,000 houses a, a year of new sales, whereas 10 years ago it would have been 30,000. And the reason for that, of course, is 
the places to grow legislation in the green belt that's been enacted with two million acres around the city that has really significantly cut back the availability of land supply for low rise. And as a consequence, the price of low rise housing has gone up significantly as we all know. So that to me is by far the biggest challenge for the low rise <coughs> industry. Peter? Well, I was, you know, I mean, my, I have challenges and opportunities and obviously I was thinking about opportunities which we've really intensified our company with, within, within the city from a mixed use standpoint or standalone between condos or office and really see that as where the future is because I think the, you know, the intensification is, is fantastic. But that said, the transit situation is really bad and that was what, you know, Alan touched on and spoke, you know, put it eloquently on, on that and it's, it's a real issue that um, is 30 years behind, it's gonna take a long time to figure out, but I think the city is still a wonderful place to be and I think that's, you know, where the opportunities are and if you, you know, I think, you know, you're always gonna find challenges in the business, you know, be it financial and, and, and uh, you know, supply of land and there's a whole restructuring, I think of, you know, if I go to the industrial business, how it's changed over the years and today, it's strictly a logistical <coughs> business. The buildings we're doing today from the industrial are totally different buildings than we did 25, 30 years ago. And a lot of it is factored around the retail business. So you could link, you know, how the effect of these logistical, you know, buildings that we're doing for companies like Amazon, we're not, but we would like to, but in, in any event, they're, but they're, out there, they're doing, I've seen the facilities they're building and, and it's unbelievable and it has a direct impact on the retail business where retailers are now going to be, uh, getting smaller and adjusting. And I think that's more of a, from a challenge standpoint, I, you know, not that we do a lot of retail, we've got about a million plus square feet that we've been work, you know, worked on, but I see that as a challenge from the retailers I talk to that they all want to downsize and it's because of the logistical capabilities that, the, uh, that they have within these facilities that, uh, you know, why they downsize. I have, uh, we're gonna have a question period for a few minutes um, uh, after this session here. I have one last question for, for all of you and we'll wrap this portion up and find out <coughs> what the, uh, the audience uh, will, will be in the bear pit then. <laughs> um, what one piece of advice in 30 seconds or less would you give to a young person that you followed in business that is your path to success? We're all different people. We all have different ideas how to get there. But Alan, you, you started off and Besi Besides having a good banker? <laughs> well, maybe that's all that's needed. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the one thing I think that, um, that I've sort of learned is w over the years is that excel in an area that you really feel comfortable in. And let everybody know that you are an expert in that area. People will come to you. People will, uh, will, uh, will, luck will go your way. People will call you, opportunities will arise. If you let people know that you really want to be known for that particular area, it, it'll, be, it'll stand you in good stead and it will differentiate you when you're, uh, when you're out marketing your own personal brand. I would say that obviously everybody <coughs> wants to be successful in business and the market is strong and the economy is performing well. Uh, it's it's, it's relatively easy to be successful. It's when the market goes south and the market get more tough and things get tough, that's when it becomes very difficult and it's all about mitigating risk. And as part of that, 
the one thing you can control, uh, can't control much of the economy. What you, what you can control is your name, your credibility, and your relationships in the, in the world. If uh, in the business community, if you've got a credible name, then when you go to ask someone for uh, hard questions, then they will support you because they know that they can trust you and you get the award and you'll perform. Well, we sh probably should have scripted our answers when I go through it, but I, I, I think about when I started and started in a recession, I went out there and I met lots of people and creating relationships that I have to this day and people that w when I was in my 20s now are CEOs of big companies that we partner with and people that I grew up with in the business. And that to me is a very fulfilling, th you know, milestone that you can be around the table with someone who knows you, has grown in the business with you, and respects you and knows your integrity and all those things. So really having strong relationships, if it's with brokers, bankers, you know, all, you know, tenants, and you know, to, to create those relationships because they'll stand you in good stead through your career as you evolve and mature. I spoke to a group of young people last night and they asked one, one question of um, how you achieve certain things life, the only advice that I could give them, I says, you know, I asked them a question, which comes first, confidence or success? And the word is confidence has to come first because if you're confident about doing something, success will, will surely follow you. And uh, I could see the expression on many of their faces last night that they had never thought about it. A lot of them went with great hesitation. When you go with great hesitation into a situation, you look unsure of yourself, and people don't have confidence in you if you don't have confidence in yourself. So anyway, gentlemen, thank you. We've got uh, a number of questions. Uh, I'm just starting to, uh, to look at them. Um, um, I will just read them out, and any of you can volunteer uh, who wants to answer them. How difficult was the retail uh, and residential integration on your one York Street project? Well, I have to arm twist my brother Alan to uh, have cores, you know, you know, well actually I should say, you know, from say actually yes, arm twist me. We have, when we do the retail, you know, we have these cores of these towers crashing through the retail. So we have retail tenants that say, I can't have that there. And then we have to move it. And I have to go to Alan to say, we have to adjust your suite layout. Oh, I'd so. like to sit <laughs> on those meetings. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, a, it's very challenging. And that goes to my point. You know, sometimes we say, would it just be easier to put up three towers and not get complicated, so it is very complicated. Every moving part, and uh, got a bunch of our construction guys that are smiling back there, because every time someone moves a wall three inches, you know, it's the ripple effect is, is quite, can be quite devastating and expensive, so it's very challenging. But that was a competitive advantage of ours, where we, where we, we were able to secure that property because we were in office, retail, and residential. A lot of other developers don't participate in all three areas. Um, and because we were able to do that, we were, we were really the ones that were able to secure the property against some other very, very strong competition. In downtown Toronto, which side of Young Street uh, does Mencus see the best opportunities to develop large-scale projects? Both sides? <laughs> Wherever <laughs> the sites are big right enough. Right down the middle. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I think that uh, both areas are, are, are great. I mean, we all know that the, the city is continuing to intensify. And if you look at, you know, major projects that have been, that have been, um, that have been uh, developed over the last 25 years in the city, you'll see that they're always along a transit corridor. 
whether it's public or whether it's or whether it's a good road network. So in the city, you know, transit is so important, and uh, and you follow the transit lines, and that's what this is about. This is a very interesting question. Can Mancus continue to uh, grow in the GTA, or do you uh, move go somewhere else? We're talking about the. Let's talk, talk about the the curbside. Not yeah, let's, let's <laughs> talk about the the, uh, the downtown area. Based upon Alan, you 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 basically talked about the cooperation between the uh, provincial government and the city government. I can tell you that the same question that we're asking 30 years ago, when are they going to start cooperating? Maybe 30 years from now, uh, we we can see. I got to tell you, if I was running in the um, the next provincial election, which I'm not. Um, uh, I would run on um, the question of solving gridlock. I think gridlock is the, the problem. Can, without a solution to the gridlock problem, can we put more density in the downtown core? Well, people, people aren't using cars. Yeah, people. Oh. <laughs> believe it or not, the condos that Alan sells, you don't. Uh, the amount of parking that people require is it's been. <coughs> Limiting, get, you know, is, is I, much I, less. I, I would agree with you that people are, are not using cars in some instances. But when I drove down Bay Street to try to get on the Gardner to take my wife That's to the, the airport the other day, I saw a lot of cars. Right. <laughs> There's more in 905. General Motors is still making them. <laughs> right. But people will start. You know, using <laughs> public transit in a better way. At least you have a link to the airport. And there is there is a generational shift of transportation as well going on. Uh, you know, there's definitely more bicycles on the road today than ever. I see people riding bikes, uh, you know, in the dead of winter. That's quite remarkable. And in the summertime, it's a whole different story. Uh, with that much more, so the generation, you know, the the uh, generation below ours, uh, has much more uh, varied as to the way that they get around. And I think that's part of the reason why the number. Now, the parking spaces being provided and condos being sold, being built today downtown, is much, much lower than it would have been five years ago. There's no doubt about that. It's the, it's the mix. It's the mix of office and residential. We have lots of office in downtown Toronto, but we didn't have much residential. So today, people want to be able to walk to work or take one subway stop away because they don't want to own a car. And uh, that's, really, that's really the future. The future is to be able to have a very, very good balance of all those uses together that are in close proximity. Here's a question. I don't know the answer to this, maybe you. What was, what was it about Georgetown that inspired Mancus to develop the enclaves of Upper Canada? Well. I don't even know what the enclaves of Upper Canada was. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good, I'm proud of that question. Is there a buyer out there? <laughs> Jory, well, um, probably whoever asked the question probably doesn't realize that that's actually our fourth site in Georgetown. We've been building there for about the past 15 years. And it happens to be a, a very, very picturesque part of the province. And it's a, it's a real, uh, very, very tight-knit community that uh, has a very low supply of homes. So uh, we've been there for a long time and hope to, to be there on future sites as well. The last question that I have here, unless somebody from the audience, and I think maybe we should <coughs> take the last couple of questions Surprise questions from the audience. Mayor Ford, do you have a question? Back? No, I'm <laughs> <with you. laughs> Very good. Here we go. Good question.
Well, I, no, it's a, it's a question. Gr great question, and um, I, I see question was what uh, impact do you see e-commerce having on retail going forward? Well, I, I th we, we we're seeing retailers taking requiring less square footage because a they they don't need to uh, the stores don't need to be as big they can be more like a showroom. I think that I'm not sure if the number is 10 percent or whatever whatever the e-commerce side is. I think that the projections over the next you know not only 14 but in the future are, are ramping up significantly. So I think. That's part of the challenge, I think, in the retail space. Not that retailers are going to disappear, but I think the size of retail stores are going to continue to get smaller because of e-commerce. If my 85-year-old mo mother is buying online, then things are changing. <laughs> and she's buying more, too. <laughs> <laughs> she's addicted. <laughs> Question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. That might have been a, a, a well, you know, it's a good question. The Empress, yeah, Empress question. Walk was, it was a name. And uh, we, we, uh, we built the retail and the residential above. Uh, we had, we had, after we had completed the retail, we, we had sold it because, because we weren't, uh, we uh, at the time really didn't feel that we wanted to be heavily in that retail space at that particular point in time. And Rio Can came to us and said, we'd like to buy it because that's our business. Uh, they twisted our arm and we sold it to them. Uh, so we built the condominiums and we, and the, um, and we built the, the retail as a combined uh, mixed-use project. So today, the, as you know, the residential is owned by all the, unit all the uh, condominium owners and, and the retail is operated and owned by, uh, by Rio Can. Can you mention space? There is no brand because the name Empress Walk is a name that that is uh, that is not a name that you Maybe could that's copyright. The answer. That's right. it's I think you're right. That's I crazy. Think that's right. Any further questions? Good question. <laughs> Who wants yeah. to take that? Where will be 25 years? How the city will look 25 years from now? Different. Hope, hopefully, well. hopefully, lots of public transit will have been built. I think you know there's there's actually been photographs of you know with all the density that's been approved and where buildings can be built that shows the skyline of the city of Toronto, that with which is quite dense and I think you're going to see a continuation of that density. Uh, expanding both east and west of Yonge Street all the way along the, uh, the lakefront. And, and I would add to that that immigration continues, you know, between 80 and 100,000 mm. people come to the city. That's what's driving all these new units that are being built. So on the assumption that immigration continues, you know, we have a terminology some people use, the Manhattanization of Toronto. I think you're going to see more and more uh, density uh, downtown and, um, and more buildings, more, taller, more tall buildings. And I think that, uh, quite frankly, that phenomenon of, of uh, population being uh, moving, migrating back to downtown is really occurring in every major city in the U.S. So it's not 
it's not specific district planning. But I think they'll continue to see more of the same, as long as the immigration continues. Yes, sir. Well, I think that there, <coughs> with the green belt that I was speaking about earlier, uh, it has slowed down the amount of land coming on stream. And in addition to that, uh, the various uh, authorities, regulatory authorities that control <coughs> the, the development of land has also have also become more and more intertwined with the process. So the development process today takes about twice as long as what it would have taken maybe even as recently as 10 years ago. I think that notwithstanding that green belt, there is a lot of land yet to be developed uh, south of the Green Belt, which is known as the White Belt. Uh, it's outside of urban areas, but uh, I think that the supply of lots and land is there, but the uh, regulatory process and the entitlement process is very, very slow. So I do think that over time, th uh, all that land will be, White Belt land will be developed. And to the north uh, of the Green Belt as well, along Highway 400, areas of Vaughan Head, Highway 88, those areas are all coming on stream as well. So the low-rise development is actually hopscotching over some of that green belt as well, So, which was not the intention, obviously, was to contain it. So there maybe have to be some adjustments to ensure that there's a ready supply of land to try to moderate pricing in and out of that area. Well, well one more question, and then uh, we're going to adjourn, sir. Well, I guess, uh, uh, you know, I, th I think that uh, you're, you're asking what, what uh, regional node would really be the next one that would really sort of uh, take off. Vaughan has really tried to promote their downtown in a, in a significant way, really because of the transit. Um, they've really, the Spanina line is being extended up to, uh, up to Vaughan, and they're creating a, a similar type of uh, experience that North York did 30 years ago um, with the population base that they have now um, and the retail base that they have. Um, the whole key to answering part of the question that the previous person had asked about, about um, the 905 is regional nodes are very, very important to be able to take off some of the strain of the system. No one wants to travel from Ajax to Brampton. Uh, some people do. But that's really not what's really desirable. What's desirable is, is to live in an area and either work in that particular area that doesn't take you too long to, uh, to transfer to. So more regional nodes. Vaughan is probably the, the one that's furthest ahead. Mississauga, of course, has already been developed. Um, and uh, North York. Scarborough tried to. And, uh, you know, it, they've had their challenges. Uh, and to the west, um, after... Uh, I guess after uh, Mississauga uh, would probably be Milton one day. But I think Milton is probably a little bit f further off, but they're more of a traditional community that's really feeding on, that Mississauga feeds on as their uh, uh, bedroom community.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'd like to uh, thank Alan, Stephen, and Peter uh, for uh, being very frank in their uh, answers. I think that uh, we're very fortunate as a community to uh, uh, have them take over uh, what uh, their fathers started and have taken it to the, to the next uh, level. Uh, they've produced some uh, buildings that uh, I truly believe and many other people truly believe that are iconic. And I think it's a great credit to the three of you that uh, can operate in uh, uh, separate responsibilities and uh, in, in, in the same company, uh, cooperate in such a way as to make the multi-use buildings uh, your your retail and your, uh, uh, your, your residential, and you keep the financial records straight between them and keep them apart. I know Stephen kept them apart tonight, <laughs> and so, so <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it's worked very well. Uh, I think that uh, we all owe the three of you a big debt of gratitude for the great performance you've done to made the city proud. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Projects like Empress Walk, Four Seasons, and Harbor Plaza that you just heard about are exactly the kind of uh, thriving, sustainable urban communities along transit corridors that the ULI believes will make uh, Toronto a better and more livable city for all of us. On behalf of uh, the Urban Land Institute, uh, I would like to thank you all, uh, Peter, Stephen, Alan, and Paul, uh, for uh, joining us tonight. I'd like to thank all of you for attending this event. Uh, our lead sponsors, Ellis Dawn, and our event sponsors, Architects Alliance and CVRE, uh, for helping us make tonight a success. Um, a few uh, just quick notes on upcoming programs and events. Uh, we have an urban ideas competition that's now open and uh, members from the development community are invited to submit uh, their visionary ideas or proposals uh, to reconnect the city of Toronto with its waterfront. And uh, our registration deadlines extended to March 14th and there are more details online. There will be an awards event that will follow on April 23rd, announcing the winners, and uh, we will be exhibiting uh, the winners' uh, proposals in public spaces in downtown Toronto. Uh, we encourage anyone here uh, that's interested to participate. Uh, March 12th at 5 p.m., we have a ULI student career event. Uh, the space is limited to 80, <coughs> and registration is filling up quickly, so sign up now. Uh, it's a great event for students uh, who would like to learn from other young professionals in the industry. Uh, in March, we launch our mentorship program, and if you're interested in becoming a mentor, uh, please see Alex, our district council coordinator, back there. Um, May 21st, from 5.30 to 7.30, we will be hosting a program on developing Mixed-use, uh, mixed-use and mixed uh, multi-use communities in Toronto's uh, priority neighborhoods: uh, Regent Park, uh, Lawrence Heights, and Alexandra Park. And uh, there will be details posted on that in in coming weeks. And there's other uh, exciting events coming up: a bike tour of project uh, developments and members-only tours. Um, all of those will follow. Thank you all very much, and uh, look forward to seeing you at our next event. Nice seeing you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Uh, I really, really appreciate it.